Well, we're very, very delighted that dear Russell G. is here with us once again this year. And uh, he's he has quite a demanding schedule this time, so we're giving him a, a little bit of a chance to uh, rest some more this morning. So may we be eternally grateful to our beloved Master, who has showered so much grace on us and brought us all together to sit together in love and remember him. So in many different ways through their teachings, the masters remind us that we are operating under a grand delusion. What we are in reality is children of light. We are beings of unimaginable light and beauty. And our home is in the land of peace. But because of the three coverings that are that have been put on our soul, the physical, astral, and causal coverings, and because of the identification with the mind and the outgoing faculties, we've forgotten our identity. And so the masters, in their unimaginable mercy, take on the indignity of the human form, the body of filth, to come to this world, to wake us up from this dream. The masters tell us that Sant Maud isn't a fairy tale. This is a reality. But it's the totality of the illusion is so great that it's just so easy to forget the true reality. We're also involved in our day-to-day lives, our, our families, our problems, our livelihoods, all these things. All these things are really the, the small picture that we get so enmeshed in that we forget to remember what we're really here for. And so the Masters remind us again and again that we've come into this world to pay off our give and take. And along with that, we have this opportunity to, with His grace, and only with His grace, to be lifted out of this incredible ensnarement and go back to our real home. The masters remind us that we are the makers of our own destinies, that with every thought, word, and deed, we are always at every moment creating our own future. And, you know, when we we think about it on a logical or rational level, you know, we, we know that we're not happy in this world. And when we have enough life experience to see through the, the glitter, you might say, of Maya, we start to see things in their real perspective. And we come gradually to know 
that this isn't where we want to be. So with that knowledge and with the knowledge that we have it in our hands to to create our own happiness or unhappiness in the future, why wouldn't we at every moment live up to our highest ideal? But so often we forget. We, instead of remembering that we have choice at every moment to do this, we, we get so... Um, caught in in this web of illusion and instead of living up to our highest ideals we tend to react blindly and instinctively to whatever stimulus or whatever challenge is, is before us and so often we forget so Going, um, going on this theme of creating our own destiny, I'd like to read from The Mystery of Death. And uh, in these readings, Master Kirpal goes into considerable detail about the, the future home, you might say, that we are creating for ourselves after we go through that great change, which we call death. So Master starts. Death is not what it seems to be and what it is taken for in, carm- in common parlance. Death and life are correlative terms on the earth plane only. But in reality, there is no difference between the two. One cannot be contradistinguished from the other. For death cannot swallow life nor can death put an end to life. It is just an interchangeable process, like the two sides of a coin turning on its axis. Death is nothing but a change of consciousness from one place of existence to another place of existence. Life, on the contrary, is one continuous process which knows no end. For the so-called death that follows life is not lifelessness, but it is life in another form, in another place, either here on earth or elsewhere, in a different form and with a different name and under a different set of circumstances, as is adjudged by divine dispensation." We have the testimony of an unbroken line of masters who taught that life and death are mere words in this world of duality. And these are meant to describe the surface effect or the circumferential shifting of the state of consciousness of the inner being dwelling at the center. It's a very interesting um, statement. He's so what Master is saying here is that the consciousness and the change only happens on the circumference. But what is in the center and what is in fact our own true being is that ineffable God power. 
These are merely visible and invisible stages in the cosmic cycle through, through which the inner man passes. And the so-called lamentable and much-dreaded death is in reality a rebirth, being born again into a life which will be more joyous and more beautiful than known hitherto. Death, the awe-inspiring and heart-rending death, says Kabir, is to me a harbinger of joyous life, and I welcome it fully. So Master then goes on to describe the inner journey of the soul um, after death. And he's quoting at um, uh, great length from the great occultist Annie Besant. As one thinks, so he becomes. Our feelings and emotions, thoughts and passions, our desires and aspirations do not die with the death of the body. They constitute an inner vest, an undergarment, which is in fact the astral body beneath the physical cloak. And the spirit clothed therein goes out to be covered by yet another mantle, drawing upon the karmic seeds that are lying in store in the causal or the seed body, the precious treasure chest. It is this causal or instrumental body with its vast resources that help its inmate, the spirit, in fashioning a new mold, a fresh tabernacle of of flesh, which serves as a fitting vehicle for the fulfillment of what lies uppermost in the unconscious self. So Master is describing um, the homes in a way that we um, go to, that the soul travels to, according to its past deeds and according to its uh, thoughts and aspirations and desire during the physical lifetime. And he's talking about, at this point, the category of all persons who come in contact with a perfect living master and are accepted by him and are initiated into the esoteric science of the soul but for one reason or another are not able to develop communion with the Holy Word to any appreciable extent, be it on account of indulgence and sense pleasures or lethargy or other things. At the time of death of these initiates, when the soul currents begin to withdraw from the body, or even a little earlier, the Satguru in his radiant form appears within to take charge of the departing spirit. The radiant form of the master gladdens the heart of the devotee, and he gets so absorbed in him that all the attachments of the world fall off like autumn leaves, and then he fearlessly and joyously goes with the master. The next category of mankind comprises such persons as make the most of the instructions and the commandments imparted to them by the true living master. 
but have not attained perfection, although they are well on their way to it. Such souls know of the day and the time of their departure in advance of the event. And since they are fully conversant with the death process and every day undergo its experience, they are not afraid of death, and they know firsthand its shadowy character. On the contrary, they wishfully and wistfully await the appointed time, and they voluntarily throw off the well-worn mortal mantle, just in the same way as they had put put it on at their advent into the world. They know some of the higher planes of the spirit world, which they traverse day in and day out, along with the master power. And they also know the particular plane to which they are ultimately to go for their sojourn after death. And there they live for some time and they work out their way up to still higher regions. They live all the time consciously in the love of the master, and the master power ever abides with them. He is their mainstay and their support, and they know no allegiance to anyone else. And last but not least comes the category of the perfected souls. While living on earth, they are liberated beings, and they lead a freed life of the spirit. They know full well, far ahead of the time, as to when they have to go back to the house of the Lord. And they gladly await that hour, welcoming the manner in which they are to quit the bodily frame, be it on the cross or on the gibbet, on the red-hot iron plates or on the executioner's block. With no will of their own, they live in the will of God, and they joyously embrace death as a means of reunion with the Beloved. So each soul then builds its own habitat, not only here on earth, but also in the life thereafter, in the astral and the causal worlds, where one's impressions are stored up, which have been gathered from time to time in different incarnations going back to the beginning of time. All these impressions linger in the soul in the form of general latencies in the folds of the karmic body. And a part of them at the time of physical rebirth prepares an etheric body in advance of the dense, coarse body. And thus destiny is cast into the mold before the physical vesture is prepared to work out the causes involved therein. Similarly, at the time of death, the departing soul carries with it all the life impressions, which are deeply engraved on the tablet of the mind. And the ruling passions of the entire lifetime, now singled out in blazing colors, which determine the level of the departing soul's future destination. This destination may be in the astral world 
or further in the causal world of spirits. So stripped of the physical mantle, each soul displays its subtle individuality, as it were, in the light of the noonday sun. Men may deceive themselves here on earth for any length of time by wearing pious looks and dressing in distinctive clothes. They may, for their entire lifetime on earth, succeed in deceiving others. But no one can play the hypocrite in the astral world, where one is denuded of the solid outer covering, the gross garment of the flesh. The astral world is the world of spirits or disembodied souls, the souls having cast off the physical body and yet still enfolded in the subtle and the causal coverings. Here the souls are engulfed and imprisoned in in the seven-shelled encasement of the astral world which draws subtle material from each of the seven subplanes existing therein. And it is here that the souls work out the causes which they set going on the earth plane by undergoing certain purification processes in the divine crucible so as to make them worthy of the land of the shining ones after the dross is burnt off. A spiritually advanced soul with a purified astral body merely passes through Kamlok without delay. The pure and the temperate soul, though less vapid in its plight, dreams away peacefully through it. And other souls less developed awaken to consciousness in the regions similar to the ones in which they have worked during the time of their earth life. Those whose animal passions still cling to them wake up, each literally and exactly, to his own place in the appropriate regions to which he belongs. This plane is treacherous and tricky, And as such, those who are initiated into the divine mysteries of the beyond by a perfect master of their time are not permitted to tarry lest they be bewitched there. On the contrary, they are quickly led under cover through this plane to higher regions for gaining maturity and stability so as to be able at a later time to face it with confidence and to withstand the tempting witchery and the delusive and illusory charms of that place. And thus they do not get stuck in their march upwards to the pure spiritual regions. From the astral world of desires, some of the souls pass on to another world, the world of thoughts, It is a mental zone created by the thinking mind. Thoughts have a tremendous energy, and each person while on earth creates his own dreamland by flights of imagination and fancy. And to this the soul is gradually led 
after death to experience these castles in the air, as the saying goes. So we can see that mind at every stage, from the universal Brahm with his pure mind essence, down to the individual, is constantly weaving a world of his own and then takes delight to live in it, just as a spider in a web of its own making flits up and down on the gossamer texture so artistically crafted from the light, filmy substance coming out of its own body. So similarly do the thought patterns and the thought images of each individual soul go out to make a wonderful kingdom far in advance of the time that the thinker in the body is freed from the prison house of the physical existence in the material world. So we can see from this the incredible importance of keeping a vigilant watch on all our thoughts, words, and deeds. It is, after all, our own future world, our own future home that we are creating. So this is the law of nature, and no one can escape from its operation. In this world of thoughts, thought vibrations are the only channels of communication between soul and soul. And all the souls here live in close communion with each other. Here, space and time do not matter. If at all there is any separation between them, it is only the result of lack of sympathy and not for anything else. And turning again to the great occultist, Mrs. Annie Besant, we find that the mental or the causal plane inhabited by the souls of human beings after they have cast off their physical and astral vestures, purged of the selfish animal passions, each soul enters into this region to reap the harvest of his good deeds, whatever the same may be, large or small, according to the measure of the good thoughts and the personal self-aspirations, ambitions, hopes, and fears. We cannot have more than we are, and our harvest is according to our sowing. So the path of the masters is a grand road, leading from merely the physical, material world to the purely spiritual realm, beyond all duality and all the pairings of opposites. The Satguru says, Move ye in the vast sea of light substance, in your hearts, in your perfection. Go on and on and on until there is not a vestige of the human life for the light substance knows no limit. His is the path not of heavens and hells, nor of toils and sorrows, but one of a flowery boulevard, studded with heavenly lights, 
and the soul-stirring strains of divine harmonies. And above all, he himself, as an unfailing friend and an unerring guide, comes in all glory in full radiance and accompanies the pilgrim soul into the great beyond, instructing in the life of the Spirit as he proceeds along, explaining the beauties and the mysteries of the way, and guarding against the pitfalls, and warning us of the sharp turns and twists that lie en route. Life is a pure flame, and we live by an invisible sun within us. What has life and death to do with light? In the image of my light, I have made you. The relativities of life and death belong to the cosmic dream. Behold your dreamless being. Creation is light and shadow both, else no picture is possible. The darkness glows luminous and the void becomes fruitful. Only when you will understand that you are nothing, It is only at the Mount of Transfiguration that you will get revelation and see the mingling of heaven and earth. So the plight of us all as incarnated souls is that we come into this world with certain karmic predispositions and tendencies And because of those tendencies, although we have choice at every moment, in a way we are limited in how we act upon those choices. And really the only way out and the realization that we all come to often by going through very difficult life life experiences is that the only thing we can do is do our utmost to live up to his teachings and at every moment pray to him for his grace and mercy. For without his grace, we don't have a chance. We don't even have a hope. Looking back on my... um, own life experience and seeing my inability that I've shown to uh, act correctly or wisely when certain choices have been presented to me. I'm um, brought to the memory of one special interview with Sanchi and it was probably at a, my lowest point that I had ever come to. And I had gone to him in a state of really understanding fully what it means to fall flat on my face. And so I went and sat before him and I told him about my mistakes. And he... 
he looked at me and he said, Dear daughter, if we had not been the sinners, then whom would he have come to forgive? And it was like in his eyes there lied the ultimate distillation of compassion and grace. And there was no room for anything but forgiveness. Just ever, ever present. And so may we be grateful to our beloved Master that he came into this world as the forgiver. So may beloved Master bless us all. Uh, just a few announcements. Um, after breakfast, as tradition, uh, at the Yellow Point Retreat, we do a group photo. And everyone will get that photo tomorrow, which will be just outside the doors here. That way. Uh, so after breakfast, sort of congregate out there. I will herd you out there if you don't show up. Um, also, um, after the photo, um, uh, Jim Crawford uh, and a few other people would like to uh, guide people on a nature tour. This is something that uh, Norma used to do. Norma, if you don't know, Norma Fraser was the uh, original Canadian uh, group representative for uh, Sanchi, and she lived in Nanaimo, which is why Sanchi came to Nanaimo in the beginning. Uh, she left the body in the when did she leave? Eighty-five. Eighty-five. Um, yeah. So there's many, many trails throughout the woods here. Sanji liked walking through them when he was here. And uh, so, if you'd like to take a little tour, Jim will guide you through that. And also, um, just a reminder downstairs. This is new this year. Uh, we have a book uh, table downstairs from the lobby. Um, and you were, uh, we were selling some books that if you don't have some books that there's lots down there that you can purchase, including that new compilation of the uh, Samhain letters. Yeah, so uh, breakfast is just about ready. So thank you very much.